for Your Darkness, a first responder mental health podcast hosted by me, Erin Jane, where we have conversations about what it's like to perform a first responder role and the mental health challenges that can accompany it. Welcome to another episode of I Will Hold Space for Your Darkness. I'm your host, Erin Jane, and today we are joined by Mr. Travis Gribble. He is a 24-year policing and law enforcement career, including roles as a SWAT commander, a team leader, a sergeant, and a deputy. Travis is now retired, and he's the founder of My Arena, an organization that is dedicated to first responder mental health education and advocacy, where he shares some of his own experiences and struggles to help combat the culture and stigma around getting help. Thank you for joining us today, Travis. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have the conversation. <laughs> me too, me too. Um, so my very first question I have to ask, which um, I heard you discuss on another podcast, is have you had the opportunity to go hunting this hunting season yet? I haven't. I'm terrible. I, you know, <laughs> I resorted to the fact that it's not going to happen. And there's something else to do that. Not only am I busy with what we're doing, but I'm just yeah. finished building the house so oh, even right. home i'm like so i just had to say you know what i'm done Not because, this season. yeah because i'm definitely especially for archery i'm very um, mindful of just the practice it takes and making sure you are good to go with your shot so i wouldn't go out there and tempt that so i'm just my wife and yeah. i just okay it's okay this year i've got plenty of meat in the freezer I'm just okay. But yeah. Well, maybe maybe you need to have a conversation with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Next year He's though. A, <laughs> he is a big hunter and he just went up so it's bow season. Um yeah. we he goes up to a place in Vermont and oh. it's bow season there and uh he also just likes to go up because he he goes he says like I need time to remember how to be quiet and how oh, to sit still. Yes. And all that kind of thing. Cuz he does uh, <laughs> Is he he hunts from a tree stand, right? Yeah, does like a little bit of everything, but yeah, they definitely has like a good good couple of spots and a good tree stand. So he'll do he'll do bow season, he'll do like rifle season. I feel like there's a musket season, musket. or mm-hmm. I don't know. There's like, and then even like before, yeah, even like before all of this starts, he goes dove hunting in September in New Mexico, which is you know just added to the hunting collection trips. So. <laughs> But um, well, let's. I I hope that uh next year will be your year then. Next year will be my year. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, thank you for thank you for coming on, Travis. Like, obviously, uh, this is a podcast where we talk about um the experiences of being a first responder and the mental health um challenges and and aspects that we find ourselves um going through as well. Um, if you would uh, be so kind, just to sort of start telling um, us what made you interested in in entering a career in um, law enforcement in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I get asked that a lot, and you know, um, <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it kind of, you know, as you look back, like, man, I think I've always wanted to do it, and I've asked, um, you know, especially family members, you know, mm-hmm. did you see it early on, and they would say. Um, 
you know, I was very much a rule and order type of kid. Um, I like to go play army in the woods. I just liked all <laughs> this kind of stuff. And then I yeah. think it was just natural, um, you know, attraction. And then, you know, and I kind of knew I wanted to do that when I was around 18. Uh, my mom and yeah. I lived in an apartment complex where um, there was a police officer that lived there with his wife in the same building. So he would come mm -hmm. home for dinner and we would just kind of shoot the shit. And then ultimately ended up doing ride alongs with him. And it just, yeah, my first ride along, I was like, yep, I'm in. And uh, like, I'm sold. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was good. So I think it's something I've always wanted to do. Yeah. And so, and so you said that you sort of decided on that when you were 18, was that the age that you joined or did you wait a little bit longer? No. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of, I kind of took some turns. Um, you know, I started going to school for criminal justice after high school. And then I was actually working mm -hmm. for, uh, they were actually family friends that had their own business. And I started working there, started making a lot of money being a youngster. So I kind of put that law enforcement career on hold for a while. And then ultimately got yeah. back into it when I was around 24. Um, but I think I always knew I was going to do it. It's just, I was making good money and kind of didn't, you know, just unsettled at the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I think as well, like I know, um, you know, when like I entered at the age of 22, my law enforcement career and, and I look back now and I'm like, Jesus Christ, I was just a baby. But, mm. you know, I think the youngest person in my squad was 20. Yeah. And you look back now and, and, and I thought as, you know, an established 22 year old that I had gone and had, you know, some life experience, which, you know, you'd had to a certain extent, but I think I think having any form of life experience at that point, it's it becomes so important in your career and in your policing because just being able to to handle people and talk to people in a way that comes with a little bit of maturity and a little bit of age, like it definitely helps. I would agree, and probably all the youngsters will hate it if they hear this. But yeah, as I look <laughs> back, like I honestly think maybe like in you know United States, maybe the good ages twenty five is you know, the minimum because, you know, especially yeah. working for a big city department, we had lots of that 20, 21 year old kids coming yeah. in and wow. I mean, lots of good ones, obviously, but a lot, I mean, yeah. just a lot of kind of, you know, wrangling in like, no, that's not how you treat people. This is how we do things. This is the why. And yeah. um, yeah. So I think maybe there would be something to be said to, waiting a little bit longer in life before you started this profession yeah but then i guess it's in this country too especially like it's strange because then you know your military is 18 right. so mm -hmm. it's kind of like exactly. i guess it's if it's one or the other like it's you know it's a bit challenging yes um so so you said you were 20 24 or 25 yeah. So I finished up my degree and that also entailed going through the academy. So okay. um, back then it was very hard to get hired on and then for them to pay for you to go through the academy. There just wasn't a lot of that. So I actually paid my own way to go to the academy. And so, okay. yeah, and this was in Michigan. And so okay. in Michigan, when you, the day you finished the academy, you also then had your associate's degree. So um, oh, wow. Okay. So, but then it was, um, you're not, the, the technical terms are at this point, you're certifiable to become a police officer, but you have not. Yeah, I know it sounds crazy. <laughs> I was going to say there's some Freudian slippage in that one, isn't there? 
it's no, you're not certified. You don't have your licensing in place yet. So you try to find this, whatever job you can. And I started in a one square mile town the day after I graduated the academy, making six dollars an hour, just crazy. And (laughs) yeah. Jesus Christ. And I mean, I know you're from Australia, but I don't know you've, if you've heard the horror stories of small departments, but literally like walk in, throw me the keys and like, hey, here's the chief and the sergeant's number. If you need help, let us know. No training, no nothing. They're like, um, okay, cool. And back then I thought it was awesome. I'm like, oh yeah, this yeah. is big stuff. But now I look back, I'm like, that's ludicrous. Like I cannot yeah. believe, but that still happens I'm- in small departments. God. And well, and, and that is very much like the, and I don't know how much you know about like Australian policing, but what I find so fascinating about the the policing aspect or some of the policing aspects in America is like all of the small little towns and the sheriff deputies and the this and the that. And it just, it just blows my mind. And, and it's even like kind of the same with like the, the fire department, like every city and town has their own fire department. Whereas where I come from, you have one state police force for mm-hmm. each individual state, and then you yep. have like the the federal police, and yeah. that's it. That is like it. And so it's like to come and you, I just I just think I think so many things would kind of fall through the cracks a lot of mm-hmm. the time if you've got agencies who aren't communicating with each other and and you know every every fire department police department has its its strengths and weaknesses. But yeah. I, <laughs> Just, it's an interesting concept, and and especially the fact of how often you guys just you work work one up. Mm-hmm. Like every cop I see over here works one up, and that is, it's really not necessarily the done thing back home either. Mm-hmm. You are, I'm telling you, Aaron, you're spot on. Because for instance, <laughs> so after I left that job to get my full time job in Michigan, I worked mm-hmm. for a sheriff's department, right? And so okay. The geographical was about 569 square miles. So, but within there, we had multiple little, you know, five man police departments, township. And I guess it comes with maturity. You're like, this is really stupid because yes, like the communication, like, okay, if this chief and this sheriff or these guys aren't getting along, we're not going to share information. You're probably dealing with the same suspects with the crimes going on. It's like, what a better resource if we combined, you know, and I I think it comes down to, you know, us Americans, everyone wants their little piece of control. So you have these little towns, yes, we have our own department and we're going to do it this way. And it's, it's very strange um, as I look back now and it's, that's typical. I think, man, I was just doing a podcast. I want to say the average police department in the United States has less than 15 patrol officers. So, and that's the average. Yeah. And it's because if you like, even where I'm at, Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, all these little teeny departments. Yes. You have the big New York LAPD where I was from in Arizona, but the average is still very small, which is, it doesn't make much sense. I mean, and, and I think it's the same with, a lot of things in this country from an outsider's perspective, but it's not a criticism. It's just like an yeah. observation. That you guys have have certain things in place or you do things for so long in a certain way that there would just forever be resistance to, to change anything. Sure. Like it's just like, well, this is how it is. And this is how it's always been done. And 
you know, I think even that kind of goes into like the mental health aspect of everything. It's like, this is how it's always been. So for so yeah. many aspects, you're kind of like I'm banging my head up against a fucking brick wall, but okay. I know. Yes. So, um, so you, so you started off at a small department and then you went to the larger department up in Michigan. Yeah. And it still wasn't that large. I think when I left, we had 16 deputies and then, um, okay. that was road patrol. And then we also took care of the jail. So it was very small. Okay, yeah. but, um, I got my feet wet in a lot of stuff. It was actually, as I look back, it was, it was pretty good for me because yeah, mm -hmm. when you're out on, uh, calls, sometimes your backups 10, 15 minutes away. So I think yeah. it teaches you, uh, how to speak to people, keep things de-escalated mm -hmm. as much as possible. Yeah. And then yeah. I also had the opportunity that myself and another person were tasked with creating, you know, back then we thought we were SWAT. Now, knowing what I've done now, we weren't. It was more like a, <laughs> quick, yeah, a quick reaction force of being able to hold down the fort until the state police SWAT team would get there. So I was able to yeah. stand that team up and come up with all the training mm -hmm. procedures, buy equipment. Yeah. So that was good for me and a good experience, but, and it gave That's me cool. the real itch to take me on to my career, you know, back or in mm -hmm. Mesa. So, yeah. Okay. And so with, were there like, was it any form of like lateral transfers between mm -hmm. any of the departments up in Michigan? Uh, not, so not in Michigan. So back then, so that when I went from the small town to the sheriff's department, there was no sort of lateral, everyone had their own retirement. Now, when mm -hmm. I went to Arizona, that's when, I mean, I don't know if you pay attention to it, how, how big the lateral recruitment is across the country now, because they're just, you know, signing bonuses and all that. Well, Mesa in Arizona was one of the, I guess, first ones really doing it, accepting okay. out of state stuff. So that was the first time I ever experienced or experienced of like, okay, you're going to take my experience from here in Michigan and it's mm -hmm. going to benefit me to come to your place in Arizona you know, both financially and also for being able to put them for specialty assignments and that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so how long did you work in Michigan for before you made that transfer down to Arizona? 2008. So, um, yeah, so I was, uh, I'd always wanted to go bigger city. And in fact, in 2004 ish, mm -hmm. I applied with Las Vegas Metro PD. Okay. And I was almost through the end. In fact, my next step was to go there, do the medical and get your conditional offer of employment. Um, but mm -hmm. I got into, I got into a shooting, my personal shooting. Um, okay. So, and it just, it didn't feel right. Like, you know, obviously whatever's got to go criminally, I got cleared from that quick, but then the civil part, yep. it just didn't feel comfortable for me leaving. So I didn't take that job, but then I never yep. lost the itch. So I picked that back up in about 2007. I started looking all over again. Okay. Is mm -hmm. that, is that how long, like the process of the investigation of that shooting took three years? Uh, well, the criminal was done in like days, like, yep, you're clear, yeah. good to go back to work. But the civil lawsuit that took place, it actually did not, it did not finish until 2010. So even once I was in Arizona, I was still yeah. flying back for two, I had to fly back twice for depositions. Um, Oh. And they ultimately ended up settling. It was just a bunch of bullshit, but that's part of the job, yeah. unfortunately, here in the states. Where I was gonna say it's not yeah. not, not like that back home. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can get in these civil lawsuits, and it just mm -hmm. it's so sideways now to where it's not even really about the case. They just try to 
push whatever government organization is is defending you, push them into settling out of court yeah. so they get a paycheck. Yeah. Literally what it's become. Well, and I, I always find it, and no matter what it is in this country, whether it's a, a mass shooting, whether it's a police shooting, whether there's like any kind of incident, I swear to God, it's always within 24 hours that there's like the notification that like this person's lodged a civil suit. And, and I just, again, like I'm not from here and and I understand that there are like going to be differences in thought processes and, and everything. But I also, I, I generally just kind of go, whether it's like a lawyer, like going, oh, I'm just going to like do this for you because I see money to to be got. But I go, aren't you just fucking grieving right now? Like, isn't your most primal thing the fact that either you've lost someone or something's happened and that should be your priority, not putting your hand out because you think you're going to get cash from a tragedy. Like I always, that it just always makes me feel so fucking icky because I'm just like, what, what is wrong with you? What is your what is your mind and your mental process to always jump to a quick buck? I don't know. Yeah. Just... You would think that, Aaron, but yeah, we've become <laughs> such a litigious society that it yeah. is, um, it's out of fucking control. I mean, it just yeah. really is. So that kind of shit, it's like, yep, doesn't even bother me anymore. Like, this is stupid. <laughs> They're going to pay them out for, we didn't do anything yeah. wrong, but whatever they're yeah. looking for a paycheck. And still, I remember with that in the beginning, it was hard for me to reconcile. Cause I'm like, okay, over mm -hmm. here within two days or whatever it was three days, the County attorney said, yep, Travis is completely justified back to work over here. You're telling me that some court is going to possibly rule that even though I did everything right, we still owe them money and it doesn't make any sense. And the person that is no longer here, they did nothing right. It just, like trying to reconcile yeah. that shit is like, like you can't. Yeah. So no, and I feel like it actually would be incredibly healthy for your mental health to to be able to separate yourself and have that foresight to go. You know what? It's actually not even just about me or my actions because I've been cleared and I know that I was justified and I did it. You know, in accordance with my the policy of my police department and the laws that I am upheld to that is now just like, it's not even a part of me anymore. It's between like them just, yeah. you know, otherwise, yes. yeah, you would go nuts. You do. Yes. Okay. So we go from, you know, some great like tactical stuff in Michigan and then you get on and is it, is it the Mesa police yeah, department so, in Arizona? Yeah. And just, and so, yeah, my stuff in Michigan as far as tactics, like I was just touching the surface, not even that. I mean, we hardly got any call outs. It was just about training, but it gave me the itch yeah. if that makes sense to like, okay, yeah, I, like, I like this SWAT shit. Now I want to do it for real. Um, yeah. Yeah. I went to it's Mesa, Arizona, which is a suburb just outside of Phoenix. Uh, okay. And if you've I've been, ever. I've been to Tucson before, but yeah. Tucson? Yeah. So I've, if you've been, I've been to Yeah. Phoenix is like, I mean, all these bigger towns, just mm -hmm. one on top of the other. So our town and Mesa, our city, I think they're like 530,000 people. And we had around wow. 850 to 900 officers. Um, mm -hmm. And then obviously civilian staff, all the, you know, crime scene and all that. So yeah, really, yeah. You know, a transition to a bigger city, um, obviously not the biggest, but um, in the whole valley, I think we're at seven and a half million people. We kind of all were wow. policing the same suspects. I mean, they went from city to city. We worked together yeah. a lot. With everyone, so, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. And so um, did you like, did you have a certain rank that you came from your Michigan places and did you kind of have to like work back up to there or was it part of like a bit of a lateral transfer that you maintained a certain level of rank? Yeah. So in Michigan, I was a sergeant. And okay. when I, when I went to Mesa, I had to start over again as a patrol officer, but they did give me what, it, and this is what most lateral programs do now. They bumped mm -hmm. me pay scale. They gave me four years okay. experience. So even yep. as a sergeant in Michigan, I went to Arizona making $15,000 more right away than I was yep. in Michigan. And so, yep. and then the other benefit is, is they, Normally, you have to be three years on patrol before you could put in for a specialty assignment. So, yep. But they bumped that down to a year and a half based on all my other experience. So, and yep. I don't even, honestly, Aaron, I don't even know if I was paying it. I know I was paying attention to the pay because that's a big move. <laughs> Aren't we yeah. all? <laughs> yeah, a big move to go across the country. Like, I better, you know, but as far as especially, I don't even know if I knew that until I got there, but. Um, yeah, definitely. And were you, were you married at this point or have children that had to like re relocate with you as well? So I was married. I, it's now my ex wife, but I was married to my first wife, and I had two boys mm -hmm. that were three and four. So we picked up and oh, wow. moved to the country. So yeah. Yeah. And all of that went pretty well. I mean, the boys, um, you know, they, they adjusted well and it was good. And, um, but now, I mean, Arizona's grown even more. I don't know that I would do it again. It's just, it's such a major city now and through the, mm -hmm. Phoenix, it's out of control. So, but back then it was a good move. So. Yep. Yep. And so, so what, so you had to do, um, like about a year and a half before you put in for specials and, and stuff like that. Was yeah. that, was the first thing you put in for like a, a, a SWAT? position or a tryout or how, how did that work? Yeah. So I definitely, I knew as soon as I got there that I wanted to do SWAT, but I didn't tell anyone cause I didn't want to be the new guy coming in, you know, that yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you want to be that guy. Yeah. So I kept my mouth shut. I listened a lot and uh, just, I found out where, cause at this time the Mesa SWAT team was part-time, meaning we had collateral. Okay. Um, and I'll tell you about that. We shortly after I made the team, we went full time. That so that was all I mm -hmm. did. Um, so I bid to a district and a shift where I knew a bunch of younger SWAT guys were working. Okay. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to be around them. I wanted to build relationships. I wanted to you know find out if this yeah. is something I was capable. Because honestly, Aaron, I didn't know. You know, coming from Michigan, I mean, this is a totally different level. I'm like, I was 38 years old. Like, am I going to be able to do this? You know, so first and foremost was, and I worked out and I did back then as well, but first and foremost, yeah. okay, and I passed the physical challenges, you know, mm -hmm. let me see where I'm at against them with shooting. But yeah, so I yeah. surrounded myself with them. And actually, I never came to them in the beginning. I remember one of them came and said like, hey, you ever thought about testing for our team? And so yeah. I'm like, yeah, actually, I've been thinking about <laughs> it. Yeah, so about a year, a year and a half, almost exactly, I put in for a test and they would run every December of every year, we would have an open SWAT tryout, which would mean this is just to get you looked at to go to the SWAT school. So you had to do mm -hmm. um, physical fitness tests, shooting stuff, um, oral interview, and then they would also go and do uh, 
uh, peer review. So they'd go talk to people that you work with to see, you know, are you humble? Are you professional? Are you a hard worker? And then if you get through all that, then the team decides if they want to invite you to SWAT school, which would be the February coming up. So in a couple months. So then I was, yeah, I was asked to go to SWAT school and that's two weeks long, um, eight days in a row, no breaks. And, you know, we're work for, if you're a, if you are trying to get, cause we opened it up to other agencies that needed their people okay. put through SWAT school, but it was mainly yeah. designed for people trying to make it onto Mesa SWAT. And so, yeah, we were work, during school. I mean, you're getting your ass kicked working 15, 16 hours a day and studying yeah. and all this shit. So, yeah. Yeah. And is it like, they're kind of trying to weed out the weakest links or are they trying to build a sense of like camaraderie amongst the Mm -hmm. people who are applying like do do they accept more than one person at a time like how does yeah it's always it's always based on how many openings they have on the team and then sometimes they would have a list um and so Mm -hmm. what you said is it based on weakest length or camaraderie it's actually a little both um because weakest link definitely if you just can't perform the basics that they would expect someone just beginning to be able to do then you're not going to make it but then they yep. also are testing because there would usually be, you know, anywhere from five to 10 of us trying to make the team. So you yep. have to work as a team, as a team within this team. And they, we, cause then I became very involved with the testing process as the years went by. I mean, you're yep. sitting back, you're watching everything. You're listening to yep. conversations. I'm watching body language, all of it to see, are you going to be someone that we would want to be with us? all the time on these call outs, all this stuff. So there's a little bit of that, both of that entailed mm-hmm. in the process. Yeah, no. And, and I think that that kind of thing, like definitely plays too, because you want to see, yeah, how you perform like under pressure, but also how are you treating your colleagues and your workmates and people that you are going to be put under pressure in that situation with. And I think that, you know, if, if someone's really good at it, but ultimately they're kind of a dick, do right. you want them, you know, yeah. on your, on your crew? You might not. <laughs> yeah. No. And I would often, once I got into a level to where I was, you know, running that testing process heavily involved in, in many different ways, um, I would often say like, Hey, I could have person a over here that they're, let's say, I don't know, come up with whatever they're came from the military. I don't care. They were seal team six, whatever you want to say. And they're yeah. squared away tactics, but they're a fucking asshole. But then I've got uh, B over here, not an asshole, great team player, and I believe that they're trainable. I'm taking them all day long because this person is going to become a cancer on the team and I want nothing to do with them. So Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, I think it's so accurate because, yeah, like it, when you're spending that much time with people and going into, you know, I mean, like I grew up in a different country and yet I know I knew of SWAT. You know, like I I heard of and knew of like all of the things that that you guys would do, and we had our inversion called the Soggies or the mm-hmm. SOG, the Special Operations Group, which from my police force is is what we had, and they would do sort of similar kind of stuff. But yeah, I think you you want elite, but you want good good people, mm-hmm. good men. Great. Mm-hmm. So makes sense. Um, yeah. and so how long did you spend in in the SWAT SWAT teams then? So, yeah, so I made the team in, so February, 2010 is when I went through school. I got invited to come Mm -hmm. on as a probationary member. 
And then actually just a few months after that, our team commander at the time, which was a rank of lieutenant, um, he had been pushing to make our team go full time because, Mm -hmm. for instance, so I was part time when I started. I'm also doing patrol, but pretty much SWAT comes first. Like if there's a call out, a search warrant, it's pulling away from our other jobs. And so it was quite frankly, pissing everyone off. Like, Hey, these SWAT assholes are never fucking here on shift and we have to fill in. (laughs) Yeah. I think it was just kind of the timing. This commander pitched it with a big proposal Mm -hmm. and they're like, call us in one day. We all get this page and we're like, what the hell is this? Bringing us back to the special operations building. We're like, something's going on. And yeah, he said, (laughs) I got the, okay, we're going full time. And I think it was going to be three months transition. And we're like, hell yeah. So we went, full-time and yeah it was yep. freaking incredible yeah i just um, tons of fun and i guess kind of yeah. a dream career. yeah and it was um and i presume it was everything that you sort of had wanted it to be or like the aspirations that you were like this is what i'm working towards yeah it definitely was i mean i think you know my background enough the downside of it was is that you know, part of that went into my mental health stuff because I'm definitely, mm-hmm. uh, when I go in on something, it seems like my, yeah, my personalities, I go all in and, you know, my, um, I guess the way I handled SWAT is that it pretty much became my life, um, you know, and, and sometimes mm-hmm. that's just kind of the nature of the beast too. When you're carrying around a work phone all the time, waiting for the next call out, mm-hmm. because we were no joke of a team and we were doing 300 plus operations a year. So you are busy as shit. So it's like, you don't really ever come down. Um, There's a couple guys on the team that were really good about that. But 95% Mm -hmm. of us were all like, yeah, you're just on it nonstop. I used to make fun of those guys like, hey, get your head out of your ass. We had a call out. Where were you? You know, now (laughs) I look back. You were probably smart. I was an idiot. But, you know, Aaron, you know. I often say to be in a first responder career for you to come out unscathed is pretty impossible in my opinion. Yeah. I I think if I would have known what I know now with mental health wellness, I think I or not think I believe I could have incorporated that in a much better way and been able to handle those stresses. Yes. Shitty, horrific days, tired, but, um, I didn't know what the hell was going on with me and I just kept pushing even harder. So, um, yeah. but it was a dream well, come true. Yeah. Yeah. But I think as well, like, and from everything you describe, it sort of just sounds like, you know, if you've got that, that work phone on you and, and it's not just you're on call for like this 24 hours or this 48 hours. Like if you'll literally have the propensity to be on call, like all the time, you're like living in this state of like hypervigilance that, is not going to be healthy for your central nervous system and your cortisol levels and, and everything like that. Like it's, it's not going to be feasible and it's not, it's not going to be enduring because it's going to get to you at some point. And I guess, yeah. And so my dig on agencies that do that, I mean, we always needed more people and it was Mm. always, you can't have any more. We don't have enough. So my dig on as the agencies are then, no, we need to have people in place so that we would have, you know, enough of our team available that whatever, 10 at a time during this week, you guys are unplugged. Yeah. Come to yeah. work, obviously. But when you're on your off time, put your phone away. You don't have to come out. 
you know, but yeah. we're, because then what it rolled into when we're always running short staffed, I couldn't, even though if you asked a chief, they would say, oh yeah, they don't have to be on call. But me personally, and especially amongst our team, you know, those mm -hmm. are my brothers, like I'm going to die for yeah. them. And so for me to set my phone down and not be ready to go help them if a call kicked out, to get mm -hmm. in that mental space, ugh, it's hard yeah. to do. You know, oh, hundred so. percent. And then, and but then again, then that's like impacting your your relationship with your kids, like your relationship oh. with your wife at the time. Because then, if you're never fully a hundred percent present, and I'm not saying this is necessarily what happened to you, but just in like a yeah. hypothetical sense, like. <laughs> but yeah, like then you know, then it's it's when you can tell when someone's not giving you their undivided attention, and it's sure. Yeah. And, and that's a price we paid for sure. I mean, yeah. um, you know, every year we would have in November, like the week of Thanksgiving, we had what was called family day for the team. So we would mm -hmm. have um, uh, spouses, significant others, children come out to the academy. We'd have all yeah. our cool shit out there. We'd have our bomb guys blowing shit up, canines <laughs> doing all this stuff. But it was us. Yeah. It actually came from a military model from special okay. forces of we're going to celebrate you because we know the sacrifices you make by giving us your loved one to help us do these operations. And then we'd always have a banquet at the end of the year, but we, we were very much, we recognized the stresses we were putting mm -hmm. on people. Um, but at yeah. the end of the day, we did it. We needed more people. It's not always good, um, but it is what yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that's, that's really sort of, you know, forward thinking in that sense. Cause I, I think I even remember like when I was a cop, our senior sergeant would get up at the, the Christmas party at the end of the year and, and similarly give that thing of like, oh, well, you know, like they couldn't do what they do without your support. And they thank the spouses and the partners and, and all that kind of thing. But I'm now in that position as a spouse, yeah. you know, yeah. of obviously not in law enforcement, but of like a firefighter. And it's, it, it dictates, you know, everything, it dictates how you parent, it dictates the nuances of your family life and your relationship and everything. And it's when it's, and it's so very different, like none of my other friends, like my, my close group of friends, like I have some other firewife friends who I've met like through my husband, but none of my other friends like get it. Like yeah. they just, and it's no, no fault of them, but you know, he's just gone and that's, that's it. And that's just how yeah. it is. And, and, and like, I'm, I'm okay with it. And it's been almost like 10 years now. So it's, I was his wife before we had kids and he was always in the job. So it was kind of like all I ever knew with him. But I think it also does make a difference if you, like a previous relationship I had, he wasn't in law enforcement and never got it, never understood it, made everything more challenging and more difficult because it came from a place of, I think, almost like jealousy because I got close to other men and, you know, had formed friendships with other men and, and that was like threatening to him. And yep. so I think like having that, that level of like appreciation and understanding definitely plays. Yeah. And I definitely, I mean, Aaron, we've really even though we did those things with celebrating the family, we really have left the family in the dark. I don't think, yeah. you know, 
we are we have not prepared them. We don't give them the tools and resources as much as we could. Any of yeah. it, and yeah, you you describing the nuances with family and everything. I mean, yeah, when I went back to the street after I promoted to sergeant, and just mm-hmm. my young officers that had younger wives with uh, small children and working holidays, working every weekend, mm-hmm. um, it man, you see the stresses it puts on them. And I'm like, yeah, we just don't do enough to prepare and we don't offer resources as much as we could. And the mental health side of it as well. You know, like you said, your group of friends, and I hope some of them have law enforcement friends, because if you don't, all your other friends are like, oh yeah, we get to celebrate Christmas morning every morning, just like it says. Well, that's (laughs) not part of being a law enforcement or a firefighter, right? Like you you may celebrate on December 28th and that's just life you know, yep. preparing for that. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think like, you know, when, when I grew up, like my mom would, like my dad wasn't around and, and, you know, my mom would often have to work like Christmas. So yeah, we would celebrate on different days. So it's kind of all I ever really knew. And then, so it didn't like holidays didn't mean a hell of a lot to me because of that aspect. And then becoming a cop, because I was younger and then I worked with a lot of older men who had young families. So I'd be like, well, I'll volunteer to work the 7am shift on Christmas morning. So you can stay home and open presents with your kids. But the way that they did it on Christmas and stuff for us was that they would just do four hour shifts. So you'd come in and work four hours, you'd get paid for eight, but it made it. So it like evened it out a little bit. And I always thought that was good, but yeah, no, if, if, my if my 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 husband Eric if he's gone he's just gone (laughs) he's just gone for 24 hours and and it is what it is but again because I think it's something that I've I've always known or I've always experienced in either my career or you know as being his partner like I don't know I think you just try to turn it into like a positive and if it's like a nice holiday like you know my husband did a shift swap the other day and so he's working with like a crew of guys who I don't know and, and he doesn't, you know, rarely work with. And so I'm like, well, I'm I'm the captain's wife. I'm going to do something nice. So I baked them cookies and I, then I picked up the kids from school and we went and dropped off cookies because I'm like, you know, it's, I think it's nice yeah. to do like things like that yes. and it's the camaraderie and, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So yes. I think it's good to do. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but, yeah, totally tangent. Sorry about that. Um, so how long did you spend in SWAT until I think you said that you were like seeking promotion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I worked, um, so 2010, 2015 is when I guess the fall of 2015 is when I decided to test for Sergeant. So, uh, with our team, we were always trying to, we had three team leaders that were sergeants. Mm-hmm. So we always tried to keep someone ready to go in the ranks that, They've come up through the team, right? Yeah. So we knew that a couple of team leaders were possibly going to leave for different reasons. And so mm-hmm. they asked us, hey, who, you know, is there anyone interested in testing? Which is always a big ask because we had a really good full-time SWAT, take-home vehicles, all that stuff. And yeah. Um, but I knew I wanted okay. to promote. Yeah. So <laughs> I yeah, volunteered and I tested. And then, yeah, so the fall of 2015. And then I knew I was getting promoted January of 2016. Okay, so in order for you to obtain rank within the SWAT um, section, you had to kind of go out to get the rank and then come back in. Is that how it was? Yeah, 
So I was already, so within our team, we also had a position called assistant team leader, which okay. was not recognized by the department, only within the team. And so mm -hmm. it was actually voted on by team members. And then I would be assigned to a team leader, kind of be in their right-hand person. You know, you mm -hmm. planned operations and stuff. So I was that prior to promoting. And yeah. then, uh, then, yeah, you have to, Mesa's rule was, if you promote, you go back to the street for at least one year working patrol before you could get back into a specialty unit. So, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, so tell me what, what going back to the street was like as a sergeant and mm. how was that different for you? Um, yeah, it was really good. I mean, we're probably going to touch on the subject of my first day in training and that's the call with Ruby. But mm -hmm. so that, so there's that whole part of it, but mm -hmm. I actually, Aaron, I had a really good time doing it because mm -hmm. I brought a lot of stuff that I learned from SWAT back to my yeah. patrol squad. And, you know, we worked graveyards in the district where I came up with, it's like hardcore yeah. inner city, major felonies going on all the time. And mm -hmm. so, and actually from those first two squads I had, I think six or seven of them ultimately tested for the team and became SWAT. So they all wow. knew, you know, and I think that's part of the reason they bid to my shift because they knew where I came from and that's where they wanted to go. So it was yep. great. So <clears throat> I did, I took them to the level of tactics as high as you could get on patrol, you mm -hmm. know, with what the equipment, the experience, what they're going to be able to do. And I had a blast. I mean, other than, wow. you know, working shitty shifts again and all that stuff, but <laughs> I was very blessed to have some just hard chargers that, you know, yeah. some, some like pulling them back sometimes. All right, calm down there, youngster. Um, <laughs> yeah, I never had to kick them in the ass. They always wanted to go out there and just do good work and yeah. take bad guys to jail. So that was good. And, was and that's the thing. And I think, I think from say like someone who would have been in like that, that junior, um, like person capability, like not necessarily swap, but we used to have, um, detectives come back. And again, like they were trying to kind of get promotion to then go back and become like a detective sergeant or something. And they were like some of the best operators because, and to take nothing away from street level sergeants because they had their own skills and knowledge and, and capabilities. But I was always very um, detective orientated, mm -hmm. like that's where I wanted to go. So having people like you kind of come back and you would just like, infuse the troops with your enthusiasm and your different take on things and your knowledge and all that kind of thing like that they were the best people to work with because it was like okay I see how this can be and I see what I can learn and what I can do and and I think it was always just so invigorating to to work with people like that yeah I mean they literally were sponges so it was like I could you know just dump this information on them and yeah. <clears throat> just try to help them go and now it's kind of actually fun because now there's a couple of those that they now, I just, you know, I stay in contact with the team, but now they're promoting. Yeah. So they're going to go. And so become Sergeant, leave the team and then go back mm -hmm. out and did it. like, it's, I don't know. It's kind of like a proud dad moment of like full circle, <laughs> watch them, you know, go back and take some of that knowledge. And, you know, they would call yeah. me like, what do you think boss about me promoting? I'm like, Hey, I understand you don't want to leave the team right now. There's no guarantees you get back. But I, I always tell everyone that was some of the best times in my life of just, I mean, we had a lot of fun, you know, mm -hmm. and just um, working together, learning, you know, 
it was, it was good times. So. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And so, um, I know that we, we sort of just like touched on, um, one of your, your most challenging incidents that you sort of had in your career before we touch on that. Did you, from being a sergeant, did you make it back to SWAT after that? Mm -hmm. I did. So not as quick as I wanted to, but it's just how the, you never know how that's going to go based on opening. So I went back and the early part of 2018 is when I was brought back as a team leader. So, and that's where I worked in that capacity until I retired in 2022. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. So it was good. That was, it was a blast coming back and being a team leader. And um, yeah, that was one, definitely one of my goals to get back to the team, had a lot of fun and um, yep. had the, the operators make our job easy. Like they just do amazing work and, we just give them the tools and resources they need to do what do what they do best. So it was good. Yep. Oh, that's good. <clears throat> um, and so I sort of, if you're happy to, would like to sort of shift over to um, some of the mental health aspects that go along with being a first responder. And um, for anyone who has been aware of um, Travis, either with his uh, my arena organization or seen him on Instagram or anything like that. Travis has been really kind and, and really open and sharing a lot of his, um, struggles and experiences along the way. Um, and I know that there's like one in particular that you've spoken about, uh, previously, would you mind sharing, sharing that with me today? No, I will. Um, with a little bit of a caveat, I'll just, you know, and I know Definitely, this is one of the. I mean, it's a. It's what I call my career call. But as I look back, hindsight being twenty twenty, and we can get into this. Is just yeah. I was not deep in shit my whole entire career. Things as I look back now of like, and that cup was getting full. But yeah, so this specific yeah. one. Um, so I talked about the promotional process. So it was actually mm-hmm. my very first day in the sergeant training program. I was okay. what Mesa does is. When you are, um, you're on the promotional list, you get brought out and you go with a certain training sergeant. There's many, obviously, but these training sergeants are trained to just help me become a sergeant. Uh, you learn. I wasn't worried about like the emergency calls and all that because coming from SWAT, that stuff was going to be easy. Um, yeah. But I shouldn't say easy, very familiar with. So it's something yeah. I had done. But yeah. the administrative part of it, you know, doing time off, reviewing paperwork. reports. It's always yeah. the fucking paperwork. <laughs> Freaking hell of a sergeant um, that I hated because I hated being in the office. I wanted to be out there playing with the, the team. So yeah. I, show for, I show up for work. It was like a Monday in uh, January of 2016. And mm-hmm. we go through our briefing. We were going to work 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. We go through patrol briefing, just like everyone I think on here can imagine what that looks like. So we get yeah. done. There's no calls for service holding for a sergeant. There's just, okay. you know, obviously the patrol, they've got to go out and start handling calls. But uh, so there's nothing for us. So we went down in the office and started just going through that administrative stuff. <clears throat> well, a call kicks out on the radio that I'm listening to. And um, working in a big city, you hear lots of crazy shit. So you know, sometimes you let it brew for a little bit. Like, is this really going to be something or someone just being dumb or whatever, yeah. trying to burn a friend? So the the call was 
the person calling into dispatch said, I just left um, an apartment where I had met uh, another male for sex. We had met on some online bullshit. And when we got done with our stuff, um, he offered me a little girl. So <clears throat> I'm hearing this, but he wouldn't tell where he was and he would not give his name. Yeah. So to me, I mean, I could a hundred different things. Is this some doper trying to burn another doper? Wants yeah. us to go knock on the door, whatever. I'm not even answering up. I'm listening, but like, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> well, this squared away patrol officer, he was actually young, going to be coming off night shift. He wasn't even assigned this call. He kind mm -hmm. of floats in the area of this apartment complex and drives by this city park. And it's a shitty, shitty area of Mesa. <clears throat> he sees an individual that we describe as a tweaker. He's like an adult male, uh, BMX bike, backpack, dope, yep. street level drug shit, right? Yeah, know it and, well. <laughs> yeah, yep. And he can tell he's got a posture like he's got his hand up to his ear on a phone. So he pulls into this park and he's going to go check this guy. And I honestly don't even know if he like, oh, I wonder if this is a call or if he's just like a heads up, like, oh, who's this piece of shit over here? So um, yeah. he checks out on the call. And as he's doing it, you'll know this and maybe some of your listeners won't. But sometimes when a caller is on with dispatch and the officers on scene, dispatch can hear the bleed over on like, hey, you're out with our person. And yeah. so that's what this dispatcher said, like, hey, that's our caller. So, boom, um, we've got him identified. And now this is yeah. a real person. And so when I hear this, I'm like, hey, uh, we'll answer, you know, myself and this other sergeant will answer. Now, this sergeant and I had already predetermined when you go to the training program for a sergeant, you can take two days, which are called limbo days, which means you don't do anything. You sit in the passenger seat and watch that person do the job. And then you just kind of, then you can take over. But I said, no, nope, I, I want to go full, full on first day. Let me take yep. everything. So I go and we go to this, um, we go to this apartment complex where this supposedly happened and it's set up, it's designed like in the shape of a horseshoe. And okay. in the center of it is a playground. It's two levels. And all the front doors and everything face this courtyard playground area. And there's yep. no windows on the backside, so they can't see out into the parking lot. So okay. we felt comfortable staging out there to kind of talk and see what's going on. Yep. So we meet there, all the patrol officers that were assigned. And there was actually a lieutenant there um, that he, quite honestly, was trying to say we didn't even have enough to go up to this door to see what's going on in this apartment. I disagreed wholeheartedly. Some of it, you know, I was pretty, definitely pretty confident in my SWAT role. I didn't, you know, not disrespectful, but I don't care what your rank is. I'm not afraid to say my opinion. And I'm yeah. like, I told Lieutenant, I'm like, Lieutenant, all day long, I can go up there with some troll officers. Let me just knock on the door. It's kind of like what we call for narcotics, a knock and talk. We'll see what happens yeah. when that door opens. Yeah. And, uh, and I was going under the premise of, in the United States, exigent circumstances. It's one of the exceptions to a search warrant to where, yeah, yeah, we possibly have someone inside that's in harm's way. We do not have time to wait for a search warrant. Yeah. So I wore his ass down, to be quite honest with you. To, honest with you and then finally he <laughs> said, 
He's like, fine, Gribble, you're the SWAT guy. Take some patrol people and go knock on the door. I'm like, perfect. It's what I wanted to do all along. Yeah. So I take a couple of them. I say, hey, we're just in this this apartment's on the second level. I said, hey, we're going to go up there. Two of you are going to be on either side of the door. I'll be behind you, mm -hmm. and then we'll have a couple more patrol people up on this yeah. balcony. I said, just knock on the door, and then I will make the decision. If that door opens, I will tell you how we're proceeding based on what I'm about to see yeah. or not see. Had this tweaker actually seen the like the supposed child, or he was just offered? He was just, and... offered. He was just offered. Yep. And when he said no, I'm not interested. He got the hell out of there. Okay. So we knock on the door, and almost immediately the door opens, and a male individual answers, and he is dressed in a pink tutu, like a ballerina type outfit, and he's got mm -hmm. makeup on. Well, that's exactly how the caller described this guy of the dress he was in. So that was enough for me. I said, hey, detain him. So they grabbed yep. a hold of him. He didn't, he didn't fight or anything like that. Um, very very much no, no expression really at all. Okay. So get him pushed off to the side, handed off to other officers. We give announcements at the door. Nobody answers. So I said, hey, we're just going to do a, a search looking for anybody in harm's way. And mm -hmm. so... They, the two of these officers with the door, they pushed in. I come in behind them. I immediately notice off to the right that there was a closed door. So I said, um, hey, I will cover this door. You guys keep pushing through the apartment. Then when you come back, we'll clear this, whatever this was. And I yeah. kind of knew what it was based on the layout of the apartment. It was a, I was used to these apartments. It was a storage area slash closet, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So they pushed through, they come back, they said, Hey, we got nothing. And um, so I said, okay, we got this door and it was small enough that I could do it on my own, even though they were there to, you know, back me up if something happened and I had my yep. pistol out. Um, so left hand, grab the door handle open. I'm clearing. It's just full of like knee high of just junk boxes, bags, just shit. Yeah. And um, I don't see anything the first time. I scan it again and I look down about three or four feet in front of me and there's a black trash bag that stands out to me. I don't, I couldn't even tell you to this day why. Um, Cause there's lots of shit in there like that. So I yeah. holster and I go down to grab the bag and almost simultaneously as I do. Um, a little girl's head pops up. Um, <clears throat> never easy. Time, um, I don't know how you retell this all the time. I honestly don't. So, um, she's awake. Her eyes, you know, I can see her eyes moving, but she has gray duct tape across her mouth. Yeah. And I get her up out of the bag because I'm like, the bag is falling. Overwhelming, uh, horrible smell. Later, come to find out she's in her, um, she's sitting in her own feces and urine. And so her hands are also bound with gray duct tape and so are her ankles. Yep. Uh, so kind of hand her off to the other officers. We get the tape cut off. She's conscious, but she's just no emotion, just ice cold. Yeah, completely disassociated. Um, yeah, shaved head, very malnutrition, you know, malnourished, just not good. 
So we get, I already had fire and medical on standby there just in case we did find someone. And mm-hmm. so we got there right away and they, they came in and got her. Um, yeah. The sergeant that was with me, this is no dig on him, um, but he broke down emotionally and couldn't continue in the call. Um, so he offered to to have another sergeant come and help me. I said, no, I got it. I can do it. And um, so, yeah, we go through this whole process, have detectives come out. Um, just I immediately, I mean, Aaron, at this point in my career, there wasn't really much I don't think I had not seen from the murder suicides, homicides, the um, child deaths. I mean, I'd seen it all. And, but this one, I immediately knew I'd never felt, I don't remember ever feeling my heart race as fast as it did that day. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just, um, like hot heat, my body was hot, just felt this pressure, but I, I pulled it together, you know, and I pushed through, uh, we handled the case. Mm-hmm. I took her, we went, I went with another officer. Um, I went to be there with them. Um, to go be with her at the hospital. Cause obviously she had to get examined and that was rough. Um, the nursing staff, one of them comes out, she's vomiting because of the extent of the injuries. And this was a, our trauma, our children's trauma unit in Mesa, this hospital, like they see everything. Yeah. So, um, it was just a, sh- it was a complete soul shocker. So, yeah. yeah. It sounds that mm-hmm. way. My goodness. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly can't imagine what it's like to have to retell that and, and relive that as, as much and often as you do. So I just want to say thank you for sharing that. Cause I can imagine it rips your fucking heart open every single time you do it. It does. And people often ask me that, but you know, Aaron, I do it because I'm hoping we get through to other people, you know, cause I don't want them to end yeah. up like me. So, yeah. and yeah, that kind of, I mean, from an agency's perspective, it was kind of shit response. I mean, we were all back to work the next day. The most we got was some mandatory big debrief with a bunch of people in the room that like, hey, does anyone want to share their feelings? And no one fucking said a word. And um, obviously hindsight being 2020, you know, we didn't we didn't take care of our people. And I unfortunately was one of those. And but then my ownership is, is that I put, you know, my career in ahead of my own personal stuff because I was just worried if I told anyone what I was feeling or struggling with as the months and years went by that I would, am I not going to be able to get back to the SWAT team? Will I not be considered, you know, I had a pretty good reputation. I'm not going to be this guy I said I was, you know, all of it. So the culture really hit me with this to where, Mm -hmm. you know, it just, it was not, um, it was definitely not celebrated when you came forward and said, Hey, this call kicked my ass. I need a little help. So, yeah. 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 And I mean, it, describe to me what, like you said, you, you know, were sort of sh- expected back at work, like the next day, like how are you in a personal sense and like the hours, days and, and weeks after that call? Yeah. Well, I had recently been through a divorce like a few months earlier. So I was alone other than the times I had my boys. We had to have them week on, week off. So being alone sucked. Um, So my go-to was to work more. And then when I was home, I turned to drinking to try to cope. Um, Mm -hmm. The sergeant that I was with, because obviously I was just starting that training process. um, He's like, yeah, we will never talk about that again. We never discussed it again. 
it was like, nope, not open for conversation. And so I just went on. Said that to you or that was the indication you got from him? No, said it to me. Yeah, because I tried to talk about it. And just, and it's just, and again, no dig on him. He didn't know how to cope. In fact, I know he's, he has had some rough times. He's no longer there, but it, I don't know specifically, but I would imagine this is something that has to do with it. Um, And yeah, Aaron, I just kept, I buried myself in work. Um, I dealt with night terrors. I dealt with, um, you know, just extreme hypervigilance. My anger, my rage was out of control. Um, Didn't know until I went through therapy and understood that, yeah, that's a sign of depression and um, didn't understand my, my thought of depression was someone laying in bed, couldn't get out of bed every morning. They just cry all the time. Yeah. Um, so I didn't, that was, I guess was my outlet. Um, I did cry at times where, yeah, I'd handle a call and then go find a dark corner and tears would come. And I'm like, you know, not knowing, but I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with me? You know? Yeah. And then who am I going to tell this to, you yeah. know? So I just yeah. kept, pushing it down and the calls never, I think from that day forward, the calls never were the same to me. I mean, I specifically remember within that first year, a couple other murder suicides with children involved. And it was just like, I wasn't reconciling that another human being could do this to other human beings, even though again, I'd already had a pretty lengthy career, but when whatever the reason obviously that call is a big deal but it doesn't have to be that call it could be something for someone else that when that when your call hits you we never know which one's gonna push you over the edge like everything changed for me on that day 100 percent, and i think it's like you use the analogy of of you know your cup being too full and and then there's the i think a common other analogy is like the the backpack with like the rocks in it and all that kind of thing and and sort of not like an analogy but the obviously being a cop you would know like Lockhart's principle of exchange and it's normally to do with forensics that like every contact leaves its trace well I look Mm -hmm. at that from the emotionality side of being a first responder and I think even if it doesn't affect you necessarily at the time which obviously Ruby's case did but the culmination of so many things, they, they leave their imprint on you, whether it's Mm -hmm. psychological, whether it's emotional, whether it's anything, like I think everything leaves a trace on you. And like you're saying, you know, that was clearly one of the most horrific jobs that anyone could attend. And then to have that on top of all of the other things in your career and then all of the rest of, you know, like, like I never went to a murder suicide in my career and granted my career wasn't as long as yours, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, you've having this trauma exposure compacted and cumulative, like constantly, like that's, it's unsurprising that it's going to break people psychologically because we're not given the tools most of the time to know what, like, like you're saying, like you were getting emotional and you're like, what the fuck's wrong with me? It's like, no, actually you are, reacting in a very normal way, but you're not taught that. Right. Yeah. I mean, we really, like you said, the word cumulative, you know, as I look back now, I'm like, man, we're a bunch of fucking idiots that we did not think that this stuff was going to add up. You know, you think about, you know what, and what really hit home about that, um, 
I've had the opportunity, you know, I've met some, since I've been doing all this, some pretty um, high speed military special operations type people. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to hear how they perceive us because when they're on missions, they're overseas, they're away from day-to-day life. Not that yeah. what they experience is, it is horrific, but it's a different because they said, if we don't understand how you like go do your shit. And then that night yeah. you're hanging out with the family and supposed to be like, Hey, everything's good. I'm over here. And it just doesn't happen that easy. You know what I mean? Yeah. The cumulative stuff and man, we've got to educate. And like what you said, normal human response. I say that all the time in my presentations, all mm-hmm. this shit that I'm describing to you about post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. That is the normal human response to all this shit you're yeah. dealing with day in and day out. So we have been lied to in the first responder community because we've been told, no, that's weakness that you're dealing with that. Keep it to yourself. If you feel that way, you've chosen the wrong profession. Holy shit. It's just unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that is, yeah, it's so, and and I know we'll, we'll sort of like get to it a little bit more like later when we talk about your, um, your organization, but you know, I was talking to a, a girlfriend I interviewed a couple of episodes ago and and we we were all taught on like it's either the first day or the first week of when we entered the academy, you've just gotten tickets to the greatest show on earth. That's what we were told. And okay. then, you know, my friend turned around and she's like, but at what fucking cost? Right. There is yeah. no, there was never anything about that. And, yeah. and I guess, yeah, I mean, like, I think you said that you started back in 1996, like, and you said, you know, you went through and you got an associate's degree and, and everything like that. But what was, you know, the conversation like back in like the nineties and, and all that kind of thing in regards to mental health? Like, w- was there any? <laughs> the only thing, and I actually talk about this too, when I speak, the only thing that I can remember is I remember us having to watch a movie about all these police officers and there, I mean, obviously this real life people that had been in officer involved shootings and they had been shot and it talked okay. about how they survived, how they fought through it, the mental like toughness, mm-hmm. but nothing about like, and also the trauma that comes with all this stuff. None of it. It was just yeah. literally like, yep, just suck it up. I mean, yeah. I don't, I'm sure that's been told to me, but it's just like our culture. Like we don't, we didn't talk about it. And my only association with PTSD back then was that's what I considered a Vietnam veteran being uh, homeless and drunk on the corner. That's someone with PTSD, not me. And that was, you know, it's, that was ignorant. It was a lack of understanding because I had never been taught. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess like we can look back with the, the, a certain level of kindness that maybe no one fucking knew back then, but right, maybe. there, there also is a responsibility that is placed on organizations who are sending their troops out to, to have, and look, I know I'm asking a lot from the police departments <laughs> to have fucking foresight. And I do get that, but you feel like that there, there should have been, you know, and it's, and it's the same, even like with say like for firefighters at the moment, like, like, you know, and the same as police officers, but like there's more line of duty death to suicide than, mm-hmm. you know, the, sorry, there's more deaths to suicide than being killed in like the line of duty. But obviously I'm like heavily invested in the firefighter side, but it's cancer and suicide. 
are the two mm-hmm. things that kill firefighters right. the most. And I know that there's like this big push to get cancer screenings and, and I know that they're doing that a lot in Massachusetts at the moment, but you're also like, okay, but what about the other fucking elephant in the room over here? Like what's going on yeah. in regards to that? And that needs to be first responder wide. And I understand like that's part of what you're doing with, with you know, with your your organisation is trying to draw attention to that and like putting yourself out there in such a, a vulnerable way and sharing your sharing your shit in something that still obviously affects you and, and always will, but it's to your detriment, but you're doing it because you're like, you know what, like if I can help one person not go through what I've gone through, then it's going to be worth it. Right. Yep. I, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Like you're talking about, I mean, you said a lot there, but talking about the force, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know at what year we want to say, okay, like you all as an organization, you need to know. But what I can say now, Aaron, is if you are running a police department or any first responder organization right now, and you aren't dealing with mental health stuff, you need to get your fucking head out of your ass. Like that's where yeah. we are. Because yeah. there is no more, oh, I never knew about this. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. This is yeah. shocking. That, that plausible deniability is fucking gone. Yeah. And then you talked about, like, the cancer screenings and stuff. One of the things I talk about and, like, where I'd like to see brain scans. So brain mm-hmm. scans got very big. Um, a lot of people that didn't know in law enforcement, maybe you've heard it through, like, the NFL with TBIs, traumatic yeah. brain injury. It got really yeah. big with the military after Afghanistan and Iraq is, because is it they, CTE as well, like is CTE, CTE. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And then our military, because in Afghanistan and Iraq, they used more explosive breaching than they ever did. Plus, you know, guns going off next to you. IEDs, yeah. So these brain scans um, can show um, PTSD. They found now depression. So why mm-hmm. wouldn't we, at the beginning of a career, we had brain brain scans, and then throughout, we're doing these scans to see where someone's sitting with this stuff. It seems yeah. very logical, and I bet yeah. you, ten years from now, if we talk, like I bet you that could be part of it. Um, but again, it's you know what it always comes down to is everyone's like, how am I going to pay for that? I don't give a shit. Like your people go out there and they um, pay a heavy price for mm-hmm. a twenty year career this is the least that we can do as a society to take care yeah. of our first responders and and also i think it comes into play too like and i think you you might have mentioned it which again we'll get to um i know you started a, a podcast recently where you were chatting with um your uh publicist taylor and about like uh, like my husband's fire department has a has had like a very strong union in the past and they've negotiated like really good things like and I think you mentioned like getting the unions on board in regards to this mental health stuff, because yeah. I know they've been, you know, pushing certain things in regards to like the cancer stuff and the cancer screening. Well, like you're saying, like if this is included and the union pushes for it, there's going to be more backing behind it. And if it's not just one police force or firefighting departments union, but like an overall union thing. Oh, and obviously I know there's the IAFF firefighters and I presume the police would have something similar in this country too. If that gets behind it, there's going to be a more likelihood that something, something such as important like that gets implemented. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that was the first time I ever voiced that thought as we were talking, Taylor and I were, 
but mm-hmm. um, and I full I get it. I've been a part of God knows how many union contracts throughout my career. But yeah. the number one thing we're always thinking about is um, are my benefits going to cost me more, and how much is my pay increase? I understand yeah. that. However, yeah. yeah, I think our unions could get behind something like this and say, no, mm-hmm. we're going to offer this day one of employment. This yeah. is going to be the city's going to take care of it or the county, whoever. And then we're going to offer it, whatever we, I would have to get. We would, you know, get it from the experts. How many years apart should we have this testing? Yeah. And then it just yeah. follows you throughout the rest of your career. But yeah. again, you know, it comes to that, Aaron, is they're going to be scared because they're like, fuck, what if this shows, yeah, there's a cumulative shit to all this. And how are we going to pay for that? Well, you better figure it out because you wanted to be running this organization. So put yeah. your big boy. And then, <laughs> and then, but, you know, and then I guess, I don't know, like maybe, again, we were talking about how litigious a community mm-hmm certain countries can be like then maybe part of the fear is the fact that then they kind of worry that they're going to get opened up to litigation as a result of brain trauma like i don't know i think that's another i know another thing to bridge to cross or whatever but oh christ i don't know but <laughs> i i agree like the the forward thinking needs to cuz i feel like organizations in the first responder realm they're always playing catch up always mm-hmm. always always and mm. they, they don't need to be like there's enough data out there it's it, it they need to be forward thinking and especially because i mean you would have seen it like who wants to be a cop anymore yeah yep. like even even back home like i was talking to my friends back home last trip i was there and like private businesses approaching coppers going, Hey, we'll give you a hundred grand. We'll give you a car, your own phone and like normal work hours, no night shift, no shift work doing, you know, basically like private investigation stuff for like work cover. And they're just approaching them left, right and center. And people wow. are just like, yep. Cause like this fucking sucks. Yeah. Yep. It is definitely recruitment and retention are two of the biggest buzzwords right now for yeah. sure. Yeah, understandably. Hi guys, Erin Jane here. Sorry to interrupt your experience of listening to my conversation with the lovely Mr. Gribble, but suffice to say we had a lot to talk about, two and a half hours worth to be exact. So I decided to break the episode up into two parts so it would be easy to digest all of the things that we discussed. Travis obviously talks about some heavy shit that he experienced throughout his 24-year career, and I appreciate his kindness and generosity in being so open and honest with me. He revisits his own trauma in an attempt to help others receive the help for their mental health so they don't go through the same difficulties and challenges that he did. So tune in next Friday for part two of my conversation with Travis Gribble, and I will hold space for your darkness.